Matthew chapter 18. We're, uh, we're not going to get all the way through the outline today. So um, if you have closure issues, this is not going to be a good day for you. So we're, we're going to look at a few verses today and then we'll pick it up next week and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. But you know, if you're new to Calvary, one of the things that we do is we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll begin studying chapter by chapter and verse by verse through a particular book of the Bible. We are in the Gospel of Matthew and we find ourselves this week in Matthew chapter 18. And uh, so our, our story picks up and uh, this chapter, Matthew 18, is a very straightforward teaching. I'm not going to break it down as much as I might typically break it down and, and yet, uh, so there won't be as much elaboration as, as maybe you're, you're used to. But as our story begins, we are about in the story about a month away from the crucifixion. And it's in that time Jesus has been talking to his disciples about what is coming up in the very, very near future, that he's going to be crucified. As a matter of fact, if you turn to chapter 17 and verse 22, just go up a few lines if you're at chapter 18, verse 22, uh, as they are coming back into the area of Israel, Galilee, it says that while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and they will be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. They're deeply grieved. So the disciples, as they're coming back into this area, and this takes probably a few days, and as they are coming back, a conversation begins among the disciples. And so what are they going to be talking about? Well, uh, they realize that Jesus is not going to be with them in the very near future. So they, they know that they're going to be going on, but Jesus, at least in bodily form, is going to be removed. So in verse 1 of chapter 18, we find out a little bit about their discussion. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest, and I've underlined the word greatest, in the kingdom of heaven? And uh, so, so that's the conversation, but, but there's a few more details that we need to know as we, we get into this. So there on your outline, when Luke tells the story, Luke says an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And so I've underlined that. So apparently this is an ongoing conversation. It begins as they're coming into the country of Israel, the area of Galilee, and it continues on until they get into the city, which is Jesus' headquarters for ministry in Capernaum. And so when Mark tells the story, it says they came to Capernaum and he was in the house. And I want you to underline house. He asked them, what are you arguing? What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And uh, they weren't feeling very spiritual at that point as that comes out. So what, what's important about this is they are arguing over who is going to be the greatest. Now they realize that Jesus is going to be, in the very near future, he's going to be removed from them. And so finally as they come into a house specifically, Jesus will address the situation. Now what's also important for us to know is that this conversation that Jesus is going to have is going to be in the house, 
a house there in this town of Capernaum. That tells us that this is going to be a private conversation for his disciples. This is not going to be a conversation that he has with the wider crowd. So you want to keep that in mind as we travel through. They are arguing over who would be the greatest. Now the word greatest there, important for our study today, I put that on your your outline. Uh, The word greatest there, uh, I won't try to pronounce the Greek word, but it means greater, elder, or more. It can mean older. The the word refers to leadership. It's, It's a leadership term. What they are arguing about is that when Jesus leaves and it's just the twelve, they are arguing about which of them is going to be left in charge of these disciples, of the apostles. And uh, so that's the argument. Now you'll recall if you've been traveling with our study, it was just a few chapters back, a couple of chapters back, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a conversation and in that conversation he says to Peter, He says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Now part of the church took that to mean that Jesus was going to build his church on Peter as the foundation. You come a couple of chapters later and what you find is that the disciples are now arguing over who is going to be in charge, the older, the elder, the the leader, the greatest is the idea. So what that tells us, because the disciples were all there back in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus has this conversation, they did not conclude that Jesus was appointing Peter in that conversation that he would be in charge. And we talked about why we would hold that Peter would not be, would not be in charge. If Peter was the one who was going to be in charge, Jesus here has the opportunity to say, Guys, I handled this a couple of chapters ago. Uh, It should be a settled issue. But what Jesus does is he goes in an entirely different uh, train of thought, you might say. So we're going to pick it up in verses 2 through 4. It says, he called a child. Now how many of your Bibles say little child? That's good. That's the best way to uh, to translate that. A a child or a little child to himself and set set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted, and my Bible says converted, some of your Bibles will say changed. How many of your Bibles say changed? Good, that's good. Uh, Changed. And become like children or little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there's a couple of things as, as our story begins to unfold. First of all, they're arguing over who is the greatest. So Jesus responds by inviting a child to come to him. He will use the child as the example. The word there for child, and I have little child because that's what most of your Bibles would say. Uh, I won't try to pronounce the Greek word, but it means a childling. I never heard of that word until I looked up this word. Childling or an infant. Everybody see that? So this is going to be a very, very young child probably around the age of three. Old enough to come to Jesus when Jesus calls, but uh, the word is very, very uh, little child, little child. So this child is going to become the illustration of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. So what we find is, is that when he uses this illustration of little child, the, um, I love this illustration because um, you all know that, that this weekend our church has the church-wide camp out 
up at uh, Fort Wilderness in Disney World. There's about 300 people who were there and they're, they're camping out, having a great time. Cheryl and our family took the big kids, but she left me home with the three five-year-olds. And uh, so it's been a great weekend. It really has. I, I've, I've enjoyed it. But you know what, what you learn about little children, and probably the child that Jesus calls is even younger than my, my five-year-olds, but children are, for the most part, they're, they're non-threatening. You know, and that would be a picture of a disciple. They're, they're not, you know, your three-year-old, as they play with other three-year-olds, they're not looking at each other uh, trying to, to determine who has the greatest social status. They don't even care about stuff like that. Uh, the, the, you realize that little children can do absolutely nothing for themselves. And my, my little guys, they think that they're in charge and they think that they've got it all handled. But I know if I'm not watching them vigilantly after about 15 minutes, they probably won't survive. You know, it's kind of how it is. Probably different in your family. But whether they realize it or not, they are totally dependent on the one who is caring for them. And so Jesus is going to use this as an illustration of what it means to be a disciple. But verse 3, he says, before we talk about what it means to be a disciple, verse 3 he says, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted, and some of your Bibles will say changed, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here's what he's saying. Jesus says, you, you want to talk about who's the greatest? Let's start here. Let's start right here. Um, and and uh, go ahead and write this down. To enter the kingdom of heaven, I have to be converted. And uh, I personally like the translation that some of you has that uses the word changed. changed. Again, how many of you have the word changed? Okay, that's, that's actually a better word. Here, here's why. The word converted has become a religious term. And, and yet the word just means changed, unless you are changed. Uh, there on your outline, I, I've put the word, it just means to turn, to turn around. And it just means a change. You, you come to Jesus and then uh, you encounter him and then there is a change, a change. Now this is important because you and I, in our side of the church, in our tradition, we don't always emphasize the change. We emphasize that somebody prayed a prayer. And uh, that can be a little bit misleading. And so, so what we'll, we'll say sometimes is, I, you know, my cousin, brother, sister, whoever, in the eighth grade went to a church camp and on a particular night they walked forward and they prayed the prayer and then for the rest of their lives, they never give God even a thought. And, and we hold on to the fact that they prayed a prayer at some point. Jesus never points to a prayer. He says, unless you are converted, unless you are changed, something has happened. On the other side, the other side of the church, they don't always point to a change. They will point to whether you have been confirmed or baptized, sprinkled, whatever it might be, and they point to that. Jesus here says, unless you are changed, unless you are changed, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So something has to happen. Something has to happen. And so uh, Jesus would say in John's gospel, he says, unless you are born again, which is a great way of looking at it because when you think of the word change, you know, before you're born, you're there, and, and you're, you're in that existence, but then you are born and then you enter into an entirely different existence. Everything in your world has changed. You've been through a change. Coming to Jesus is not just a 
praying a prayer. You won't find that in the Bible. But what you will find is that when people encounter him and they put their trust in him, there is a change. And it can be a dramatic change. It's, it's typically a dramatic change. And uh, we'll certainly be talking about that as we go. But Jesus says it starts with conversion. So the question that I would just want to ask, and, you know, many times as I'm teaching through the Bible, I, I don't stop and, and um, I assume that all of us have been changed. We remember how the existence was and then we encounter Jesus and we realize that there has been a change. So what I would just want to do just for a moment is for each one of us to ask ourselves, was there that change, that conversion? I love conversion also because the word conversion, when you think of that, like if if in your house you have um, a bedroom and you decide, I want to turn this into an office, what you're doing is you are converting it from one thing to another. It's still there. It's still the same space. But when you've converted it, you are using it for something completely different. Does that make sense? So when we use the word conversion, it means that it's an existence that's completely different than the existence before. My concern, my concern for the church at large and, and, and this church is that maybe some of us have not had a conversion, a change where we've entered into a completely different existence. We've begun going to church and we've become nicer and nicer people, which is great, but that's not conversion, that's not a change. And so evaluate that, evaluate that. And hopefully we can talk about that more as we go. So to enter the kingdom of heaven, I have to be converted. Once that is settled, verse 4, he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So for Jesus, he says the issue isn't who's going to be in charge, who's going to lead. The issue is who is going to humble themselves as a child, that's the one who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you want to write this down. Greatness in God's kingdom is found in childlike humility. Childlike humility. And humility is the acceptance, and you want to write this down, that I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge. Some people come to Jesus and they've never come to the place where they've accepted uh, in humility, that they are not in charge, he is in charge. And, and within the church world, there are many who say, when Jesus says, hey, I want to talk about this, they say, no, that's not how it is, Jesus. I tell you how this relationship is going to be, you don't tell me. And that's not a change, and that's not humility. And so that's, that's something that we, we need to think about. It's important also to remember that Jesus here is speaking to those who are disciples already. So as he says, You have to be converted to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to operate as a child, childlike humility, if you're going to be a disciple. He's now going to use the term little children 
as a metaphor for what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. When he talks about little children in this passage, he's not referring to children's ministry. He's referring to his disciples, his followers, as little children. Everything that we talk about in this passage can relate to children's ministry and children, but he's talking specifically of those who would be followers of his. So he says, here's how you live this out. So with childlike humility as a disciple, I, verse 5, he says, whoever receives one such child, little child, in my name receives me. Again, he's speaking of believers, you can apply this to children, but it's believers who he refers to as his little children. So when he says in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, uh, what he is saying is that with childlike humility, if I'm going to be a disciple, I receive his little ones like they are Jesus. You want to write that down. How we receive the followers of Jesus is how we receive Jesus. So the question I have to ask myself is how would I receive Jesus? That's how I receive the others who would be following him. Now it's interesting to me that he has to say that because one of the things that we're going to find is that the followers of Jesus aren't always the most impressive people. And so we don't receive them because they are great. We receive them because they belong to Him. And how we receive people who sometimes aren't great, but they're followers of Him, are, is how we would receive Jesus. So the first thing that we do is we treat His little ones like they are Jesus. Verse 6 and 7, He says, whoever causes one of these little ones, again speaking of His followers, who believe in me to stumble some of your Bibles might say sin, whatever it says, underline that. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Positive encouragement from Jesus, verse 7. It says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. So on the one hand, I receive with great humility I treat his, his disciples as though they are Jesus. You want to write this with childlike humility. I now handle his little ones very carefully. Very carefully. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. That word stumble there on your outline, sin or stumble, however your Bible says it, is the word scandalizo from where we get the English word scandalize. Does everybody see that there on your outline? It means to entrap, to trip up, uh, to stumble, to entice, to sin, apostasy, or displeasure. It can be translated as to offend. Uh, so what Jesus is saying here is that if you're going to be great in God's kingdom, you never want to cause one of these little ones who believe in Him to stumble in their faith. You don't want to do anything that's going to cause them to be tripped up in any way. Now it's also important Remember that Jesus is not speaking to the crowd, he's speaking to a group of disciples. So the idea is you never use your position, you never use the authority that you have in any way that's going to trip up one of these little ones. And uh, certainly that happens, we could say false teaching, we see it in the church sometimes, in the area of morality, we see that in just, just things that certain people do. And what they do is they cause his little ones to be tripped up scandalized, to fall into sin. And Jesus says, it would be better for you that a heavy millstone be tied around your neck and you be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
I think this kind of hits the disciples pretty hard at this point. When he says a heavy millstone, it was also called a donkey millstone. It weighed a couple thousand pounds. It would be the stone that you'd attach the donkey to. He'd walk around in circles and he'd be grinding the wheat. Now, from Jesus' perspective, as he speaks to his disciples, he says, it would be better for you to be drowned in the depths of, a, of the sea than to cause one of my little ones to stumble. Would you agree that that's kind of heavy words from Mr. Forgiveness? Now here, here's why. I get this. I get this. Because you see, when he calls us his little ones, we're his children. And one of the things that we find, and we've all done this, but you, you parents, you get this. If you hurt me, that's okay. I get over it. But if you hurt one of my kids, <laughs> it's war. And, and it, we, we're all that way. Uh, you moms, we've seen the mama bear come out of you at times. You have the papa bear and the mama bear. You can go get over a lot of stuff, but somebody hurts your kid. All of a sudden, it wakes something up inside of you. You want to know where you got that? You got that because you are created in the image of God. And you have a small taste of what God feels. So when somebody harms your child and it puts you in a rage, just know that what Jesus is saying here is that when somebody harms his little ones and they don't repent, there comes a time when all they experience is the wrath of God in their life and in their eternity to the point that they would wish that they'd have been drowned in the depths of the sea rather than to face that. The idea is that he is very passionate about his children. Does that make sense? He's that passionate about you. Now tuck that away that he's going to be that passionate. And so with great humility, we we treat his little ones very carefully, very carefully. And with great humility as a disciple, and I want you to write this down, I deal with myself radically. Others carefully, myself radically. Verse 8, he says, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life and crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and cast into the eternal fire. Underline that. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Go ahead and underline that. So I deal with myself myself radically. Let me just stop here and and say, um, if you've been struggling in an area of your life, um, after the service today, Pastor TJ has brought some tools from home and he'll be happy to help you cut off whatever it is that, that you're struggling with. That was a lot funnier in the first service. I think it's because you're more nervous. What Jesus is doing here before you go cutting parts of your body off is he's using some hyperbole. Uh, the idea is he's driving home. This is how serious I take it. As disciples, we need to deal with ourselves very seriously. Jesus teaches that it's never your body that causes you to sin. It's something deep within that causes you to sin. Uh, There in your outline, Jesus would say it like this. It all comes from the heart. For from within, out of the heart of men, evil thoughts proceed, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, covetings, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, railing, pride, foolishness, So he's using a very vivid illustration, but the point is it all happens on the inside. 
and, but the idea is as disciples we deal with ourselves very seriously. We, take, we remove those things as the idea. So with great humility I deal with his little ones uh, very carefully. Uh, I deal with myself radically and then he takes it the next step as a disciple. Verse 10 he says, see, to you, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now your Bible might say it a little bit different. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels, their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Very interesting uh, passage. First of all, the word despise there on your outline is translated different ways. In its uh, definition, it means to despise, to disdain, or to think little or nothing of. And so with childlike humility as a disciple, when I encounter his little ones, I don't despise, which is how the New American Standard says it. I don't look down on, as the NIV would say it. I don't uh, think his little ones are worth nothing, as the New Century Version says it. And here's the reason why. For they have angels. And you want to write that down. And you notice it said, they're angels. The concept of guardian angels is not just a cute spiritual thing that we talk about. It's biblical, it's Old Testament, and it's New Testament. And uh, the Bible speaks of guardian angels. And uh, so there on your outline, Paul would describe it like this. Paul says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So Paul says that there are angels and they are sent out to help those of us who are inheriting salvation. They apparently are assigned to us. Now it's important also to say that we don't pray to our angels. We pray to Jesus and he dispatches the angels. But he sends them to minister to us. And at times uh, you might have a very dramatic intervention and you look on and you say, how in the world did that happen? Back in, uh, before moving up here, I was on staff at Calvary Fort Lauderdale and they had a class on angels. It was a fascinating class. And there was a couple, a family in that class and they shared the story. They said that when their kids were little, they had gone to the beach as mom and dad and two kids. They went to the beach and as you do with your little kids, you know, you sit down and you have your chair and your little kids play right there at the edge in the water. And uh, the, the kids couldn't swim, but they were right there and mom and dad were watching them. They said, we got caught up in a conversation. We weren't watching our kids. And uh, all of a sudden we realized that we don't see one of our kids. And so they stand up like any parents do. They look up and down the beach. They start calling their child's name. And you, parents, you know that fear when you, you can't find your child. And so they're calling their child's name and about 15 to 20 feet out in the water, a man stands up holding their child. And the man comes walking up and he hands them their child. And he says, he's okay. He just got a little, little water in there and hands the child to the parents. The parents take the child. They look down at the child. It's kind of coughing, but okay. And they turn to thank the man and he's not there. And they look around, can't see him anywhere. And their other child says, look, no footprints, no footprints. I believe they encountered an angel. And angels are sent, as the Bible says, to minister to those who would inherit salvation. It was 
almost 19 years ago when we had Daniel. Daniel was a baby. Well, obviously, he was uh, just a, a couple, couple, like literally weeks old. And moms, you know how you get like no sleep in those first couple of weeks. But for Cheryl, it was really difficult because every few minutes she'd have this fear and she'd stand up and she'd walk into his bedroom. And, and uh, I mean, his bedroom was like the part of our bedroom, really. But she was walking over and looking at the bassinet, making sure he was okay, making sure everything's okay. She'd get back in bed and a few minutes later she gets up. She starts praying about this. Why can't I just, just relax a little bit? So this one time she gets up she walks over to the bassinet, she's getting no sleep, and she hears a voice behind her audibly, and it says, that's my job, go to sleep. And so she went back to bed, she said, I felt this incredible peace, and as far as we can tell, she's not checked on him since. So, (laughs) I believe, I believe, based upon what the Bible says, that there was a ministering spirit and angel who was there who had been given charge over this child. And so it doesn't mean that you live recklessly, but you live confidently that he sends his angels. He sends his angels. Again, you don't, you don't pray to them. In the Bible, angels don't appear you know, all, all that much, but when they, they do appear, they appear for the most part in human form, in human form. And there are times in the Bible when an angel will engage in what you and I would call mortal combat. They are, they're incredibly powerful. There are no pictures in the Bible of naked babies flying around. You know, that's just not the picture in the Bible. But they are incredibly powerful. So for instance, notice this verse there in your outline. It says, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's the angel I want watching my kids. (laughs) Are you in agreement? You bet. As a matter of fact, I want the angel watching my kid is the one who kind of takes action and doesn't always uh, wait for for you know like the 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 direction. I want the one where somebody comes to harm one of my children and that angel looks on and just they're dead. And Jesus is like, I didn't say kill them. The angel's like, my bad. That's the angel I want. That's the angel I want. So um, with that, so why does he say this? Um, He says in verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. He says, whatever you do, you don't despise, you don't think little of, you don't put down any of his little ones. And here's the reason why. Their angels continually behold the face of my Father in heaven. It's a warning. When the angels are given charge, they are very passionate over the ones that they are called to have charge over. They're continually beholding the face of his Father in heaven. The idea is that when somebody comes and despises one of these little ones, they're looking at the face of the father saying, can I go in? To which the father's probably saying, no, you can't, you can't go in. A few verses ago we read where Jesus said it would be better for that person to have a heavy millstone tied around his neck and he'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. The idea is that God is very passionate about his children 
a few verses later we're warned, be careful how you treat God's little ones uh, because their angels continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. The idea is they are passionate also about who they've been given charge. Does that make sense? Do you find that at least interesting? So here, here's what I, I want to say in just a couple of seconds. We're going to cut it off right there. We'll pick it up next week as we go. You know, a few moments ago I had you underline where Jesus says, Jesus says, it's better to enter into eternity, you know, without having hand or foot or eyes than to go into the eternal fire or the fiery hell, uh, and then having all of those things. You and I live in the first generation. Jesus apparently believes in hell. You and I are the first generation where people profess to be believers in Jesus, but we just don't believe the things that Jesus believes. We don't believe in that. We are the first generation of people who profess to be believers in Jesus. We just don't believe that part in Genesis where he says, here's how it all began. We believe another method. And then we don't believe at the end of the Bible where he says, this is how it all ends. We don't believe that. So we profess to be followers of Jesus. We just don't believe in what it is that Jesus believes in. And we don't believe how he says it all came into existence. And we don't really believe what he says about how it all ends. And the church, we would say, of the last days is filled with those who don't believe what Jesus believes, who don't believe Jesus when he says, here's how it all began, and we don't believe Jesus when he says, here's how it all ends. That is a person who has not been converted. That is a person who has not been changed. You can't believe in Jesus and at the same time not believe Jesus. As your pastor, before Jesus would talk about discipleship, he said, we got to get this conversion thing right. We got to get this change thing right. And I asked you to evaluate have you been converted? Have you been changed? Let me ask you do you believe what Jesus believes? Do you believe when he says this is how it all began and this is how it all ends? And if not, let me ask you what Jesus is it that you believe in? But you have the opportunity today to come to him and say, I want to believe in the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that I create according to my belief system. The Jesus who's revealed himself. And the Bible calls that conversion. The Bible calls that a change. The Bible calls that being born again. And it's very simple. It's where you and I look to him and we say, Jesus, come in. I receive the free gift of salvation that you have for me. Say, forgive me of my sins. He already has, but we sometimes say that. Forgive me of my sins. I want the real Jesus to come in. And when the real Jesus comes in, here's what you're going to find. You're going to begin to believe the things that Jesus believes. 
you're going to begin to believe the beginning and the end the way that Jesus says. Do you remember when Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And when we looked at that, the word many is also the same, mostly, mostly. I believe that you and I live in a church age where many are believing in another Jesus. I'm going to pray and I want to invite you. I'm not asking you to question your salvation. I want you to rest in that. But if you don't believe in the things that Jesus believes in, and you're questioning how Jesus says it all started, and you're questioning how Jesus says it all ends, I have to question what Jesus is it that you're trusting in. And so as I pray, you pray, and you invite that Jesus in, the, the one that's part of the, the Bible's about. And then I would like you also, after the service, there's going to be some prayer partners standing by. Would you solidify that decision by praying with somebody just so that, that you know that you've prayed with somebody, you can remember this day? And then would you let us know by marking it on your card that you've chose today to believe what Jesus believes in? How it begins and how it ends? And uh, don't leave here today without being changed, converted, born again, saved. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrap this up today, Lord, they wanted to talk about who's the greatest. And you said, no, let's talk about conversion. Let's talk about change first. We want to be those who rest in our relationship with you. We want to hear your Holy Spirit. We want to walk with you. We want you to step inside of our lives and grow us, transform us. We want that change. Not something that we manufacture, but something that happens when you step in. And your word says that I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone will open the door, I will come in to him. And so today, we look to you and we say, Jesus, Jesus of the Bible, Jesus who is God, I am inviting you to step into me. Save me. I want to be born again. I want to be converted. I want to be changed. I recognize that I can't do it, but you can. And so I'm inviting you to step in. I thank you for forgiving me of all of my sins, paying the price. I want to be yours. And from this day forward, as best that I know how, I will follow you. And I will be known as a Christian. And if you prayed that prayer today or said something like it where you've invited him in, he promises to come in and to never leave. And then, Father, as we leave here today, I pray that you keep us till we meet again. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.